Amen. We're in the home stretch. If you have a Bible, open up to Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6. We've worked uh, through uh, five chapters so far, and this morning we'll be in Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. As you're opening up there, let me say how excited I am about Easter time, what an opportunity it is for outreach, for us to reach our neighbors, for us to, to call folks and invite them to church. We're going to have a lot of great things going on, so I would ask you, if you would, go ahead and begin praying now that God would bless our efforts during the Easter season as we treat, seek to reach Gadsden for Christ. If you have your Bibles open there to Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, do me a favor and stand with me out of reverence for the reading of the words of our God. Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in such a way that as the words on this page are being read, God himself is speaking to us. Hear the word of the Lord, beginning in verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. Let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Let's pray together. God, we ask you even now, if you would, please open our hearts and minds to receive your word. And God, it's my prayer we would be changed by it. This morning, it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. You know something we love to talk about? We love to talk about loving your neighbor as yourself. It's easy, though, to talk about loving your neighbor. It's another thing to do it. Talk is cheap, as we know. I was a college minister several years ago. I was 23 years old, so I was kind of fresh out of college myself, and I took our college ministry, a group from our college ministry from Mobile, where we served, over to Vu Carey Baptist Church in uh, New Orleans, Louisiana. I think I might have lost y'all for a second. You guys hear me now? Okay. We went over to serve Vu Carey Baptist Church there in the French Quarter in New Orleans. And so this was a church that had a really robust ministry there um, to... Uh, had a really robust ministry there to the homeless population in particular in the French Quarter. They had a, 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 a robust ministry there, and each week they would feed folks and help them get clothing and help them take baths, help give them a place to take a bath and things like that. And so on the way over, I recognized this is a bunch of Baptist students from Mobile, and we're not used to some of the things we're going to see here in just a little bit. So I was talking especially to the guys in the group. And I, can't, I hope you understand, and I think many of you know, you are very tough and rarity and raring to go when you're 23 years old. And so you know a lot and uh, know how to tell other people how to, how to do things. And so I was talking to him about, man, we're going there, and we're going there to serve. We're going there to serve others. We're going there to love our neighbors. And there's no task that's beneath us, and we're going to love and serve the folks through this church and you know, no matter what kind of situation we find ourselves in, we're going to love and serve these folks. 
So we get there, and, and there's a day where they're feeding folks there at the church, and the gentleman came in, and it became pretty clear pretty quickly that this man had had an accident. And um, you could smell that he had had an accident. He needed some help getting cleaned up and some help getting some fresh clothes. And I didn't really know what was going on, but I was standing there trying to help and doing a couple things, and I heard the pastor's wife there at the church say, I need a man over here to help. We've had a, someone with an accident, and I, I need some help with him get, handling his clothes and everything. And I thought, man, I hope there's a man here to help. And I look over one shoulder, and there's no college student that I can tell what to do. And I look over the other shoulder, and there's no uh, uh, college student that I can tell what to do. And I realize there is a man here to help, and I am he of whom she speaks. It's one thing to say you're going to love your neighbor. It's another thing to do it. One thing to say that we love folks around us. It's another thing to do it. But Paul's been setting up an idea here. He's, he's spent chapter after chapter, verse after verse, trying to explain that the gospel is not rooted in keeping the law, that your justification, your holiness, all these things are rooted in what Jesus has done, not in your ability to keep the law. Well, now he's sort of setting up an idea and asking a question almost. What does a holy life look like in the gospel if we're not simply meant to just obey the law? If that's not all our holiness consists of, what does a holy life look like in the gospel? He's moving us toward this section back up in chapter 5, verse 6, when he says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, that is, keeping the law in the flesh in an exterior way, Neither of those things count for anything, but only what? Faith working through love. He picks this theme back up. Eight verses later, chapter 5, verse 14. For the whole law, if you're so concerned about the law, here's how you fulfill the whole law. It's in one word. You shall what? Love your neighbor as yourself. And so the way that we obey God, the way we live holy lives in the gospel is Faith, trusting God, working itself out through love. And we know the Bible says then that we will love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And what? Love our neighbor as ourself. Now again, that's one thing to talk about. It's another thing to do. And the Holy Spirit, knowing our hearts, and Paul, knowing people, add some feet to this message. The, the rubber meets the road. I I'm not a big fan of theoretical Christianity. You know, I, I like boots-on-the-ground Christianity. I, I like shoe-leather Christianity. Let's put feet to this love. We can't just talk about what uh, uh, living by faith, bearing itself out in love is like. We, we can't just talk about faith working through love. We can't just talk about loving our neighbor as ourself. What does it actually look like for the love of God and the power of the Holy Spirit to shape our community to, to lead you to actually love your neighbor it's not just theoretical to love your neighbor as yourself a good place to start let me tell you where to start loving your neighbor as yourself with your neighbor you, by, by definition your neighbors are those closest to you and in addition to that God's given us a lot of neighbors right here in his church the household of faith 
Paul calls it later. We begin with those nearest to us because of the heart of Jesus. We begin by loving one another first. The Bible says they will know you are Christians. Jesus himself said, right? They will know you are Christians by the love that you show to one another. To one another. Good place to start is the community that you're a part of. And obviously that includes the household of faith. And so Paul shows here some ways that life in the Spirit shapes the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this morning, I want to show you three truths. They're going to show you how the Spirit shapes the community that God's called together here at First Baptist Church. Now, these truths impact the way you impact your, the way you speak to and live around your literal neighbors as well. Not just here in church, but your next door neighbor at home or the people you encounter in the grocery store, folks you meet anywhere and everywhere. It impacts those things. But in particular, I think Paul here is showing the way that the community of faith, the household of faith, is shaped by the Spirit. Three truths this morning to help you uh, see how the Spirit shapes our church. Here's the first. The Spirit leads us to gracious accountability. The Spirit leads us to gracious accountability. Notice what the Bible says in verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. If anyone is caught in any Transgression. One mark of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer is that believers ought to stop blushing. We ought to stop blushing about sin. This is one of the things people will come up to me sometimes, and oftentimes even people who aren't a part of the church, and they'll come to me and they'll say, now listen, I need to come talk to you about something, and, uh, but I want you to know it's pretty bad. And I say, well, listen, you're going to have to be bad. To beat the worst I've ever heard. You should meet the people at First Baptist Church. No, I'm just kidding. But I just say, I say you're going to have to be pretty bad, right? To be worse than what I've heard. But really, but really, think about it. They ought to meet the people at First Baptist Church, ought they not? Because by the Holy Spirit, you've seen your heart. I certainly know my heart. And I know the sin that lurks there. And my sin is not better or worse than anyone else's sin. I don't sit around and say, thank God I'm this kind of sinner, not that kind of sinner. Because all sin wrecks our lives. It does it in a different way. You see, Christians don't clutch their pearls. Uh, Christians don't act shocked and amazed by the fact that sinners are in the world. If anyone is caught in any transgression, we take it, we see it, and we recognize that that person needs grace. Just like I need grace. If anyone is caught in any transgression, the Bible says, you who are spiritual, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. I think the word spiritual and people who are spiritual is one of the most abused concepts in the church today. Because so often we think about those who are spiritual. They're such a spiritual person. And oftentimes what we're thinking of are those who want us to know they're spiritual people. And oftentimes those are not the people who are actually spiritual people. It's sort of like maybe the people here in Galatia who are there trying to boast in the flesh of someone else because they're so spiritual. We're so spiritual we follow the law. That's how spiritual we are. 
And so often we look and we see people who are judgmental and haughty and who want to make a show of their flesh, want to demonstrate how godly they are, and we are addicted to what we can see. And so we assume those are the really godly people. And those of us who have a quiet, simple faith, who try to just love others and keep our head down and do what God's called us to do, we think that we're not very spiritual. But oftentimes the opposite's true, and that's part of what Paul's trying to expose here, I think. Those of you who are spiritual should restore him. Isn't that interesting? We're not gathering the spiritual people of the church together to stone them. We're not, you know, those of you who are spiritual should judge them until they never come back. No. Those of you who are spiritual should remind them of what God commands so that they don't do it anymore. No. Those of you who are spiritual should restore him. Anyone who's called in any sin should restore them in a spirit of gentleness. We don't show the Holy Spirit. We don't demonstrate our inner spiritual life. We don't show the Spirit by becoming judgmental or by grabbing our torches, but we do it by being gentle and loving. Because if you're really near God, I mean, if you've really experienced the Holy Spirit, you know how capable you are of committing that exact same sin. In fact, it might even be a sin God's already delivered you from. And so you don't go want to stone them, you go wanting to help them, to restore them in gentleness. You see, so often when we think about accountability, we think about being hard on one another and drawing real tough lines around one another. And I, I guess I'm not saying that you ought not to have someone in your life who can call you out on your sin. You need that. But the point of Christian accountability is gentle, loving restoration. Even the most harsh passages in the Bible that speak of these things, like when Paul says, what? Hand him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Corinthians. So that learn to obey. So he might have a possibility of being saved in the end. Even excommunication in the Bible. Church discipline of the most severe sort is meant to bring about repentance and restoration. It's easy, though, also when we start thinking about accountability to start to get in the mood that we are God's watchdogs. You ever met someone that's God's watchdog? I have. I have. I, I've seen people who sometime along the way, people who I had gentle, loving, ironic spirits in college and seminary, and I've, people I've met and loved and cherished, and I've seen the way that somewhere along the way they determined that God needed their help to have a pure church. It's one of the reasons why I don't call y'all every day and ask you if you're sinning or not. I can't. I can't do a better job of the Holy Spirit. God doesn't need a watchdog. You know? God doesn't need a watchdog. And I've seen some of these folks who think that they're God's appointed man for this sort of task careen into ungodliness because of their obsession with other people's faults and sins and bad theology and weird thoughts and everything else. And what they've done is they've disobeyed what the Bible says when it says, keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Christian accountability is fraught with temptation because you are daring, and my friends, you are daring to step into someone else's life and talk to them about their sin and their conscience and their relationship with the Lord. We have to be so careful not to appoint ourselves lords over the consciences 
and spiritual lives of others, but instead in love and gentleness and carefulness, step into their lives and say, I'm with you in this. Let me help you walk nearer to Jesus. I love you. We're gentle with them. Will we commit to be a people who carefully and lovingly restore one another? When we sin, there are people in the room right now who are living with a load of guilt over sin because they are afraid over how they'll be treated if they were to bring it out into the open. They might even be afraid to talk to their pastor about it. They're certainly afraid to talk to their friends about it. Will we create a culture in this church where if anyone is caught in any transgression or if anyone says, I'm going to bring this out of the darkness and into the light, will we commit to be a people who meet that with gentleness and love to help them grow in Christ? Legalism leads us to hide sin, but the gospel leads us to repentance. Will we be a church that creates an atmosphere and a situation and an environment that's conducive to repentance? I hope we will. So not only does the Spirit lead us to gracious accountability, but second of all, the Spirit leads us to gospel-centered unity. And we're going to look at verses 2 and 6. Verse 6, we're going to look at today. It's sort of a standalone verse in the middle of these two, but I feel like it made more sense with these verses than it does the ones that are to come. So, verses 2 and 6. Here's the first. Verse 2. You see what Paul says to them? Bear one another's burdens, and so what? Fulfill the law of Christ. Do you see this progression that he's made? Do you see, do you see what Paul said? He says, first of all, what? He says, Circumcision or uncircumcision doesn't matter, but what matters is faith working itself out through love. And then he says, the whole law is fulfilled in one word. Love your neighbor as yourself. And now he's connecting this furthermore and calling this idea then practically. How do I love my neighbor as myself? I, we bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. Every jot and tittle of the Bible belongs to Jesus. He inspired the whole Bible. The whole thing should be written in red, if you ask me, because every ounce of the Bible is the Word of Christ. You see, it's one thing to be united passively. Passive unity is easy. We come here, and we see church as a service, and we come, and we worship, and we sing hymns, and we don't step on each other's toes and we hold the door for one another and we go home and that's that. That's a sort of passive unity that exists. And as long as we're not upset about anything that happens that Sunday, we go back home and we're unified. But the Bible's not talking about just a simple sort of passive unity here. The, the Bible's talking about an active unity. A, a, a unity that's trying to do something. We're not simply not fighting that's not unity in the church. Lots of groups don't fight, you know. I mean, some folks go to buffets on the weekend and don't even fight there. They know more fried chicken's coming. They're united, you know. But listen, I want you to think about not just simply not fighting, but actively pursuing unity by bearing one another's burdens. Bear one another's burdens. Between one another, we have a proactive unity as we seek to do this. And 
Paul has already given us the first illustration of a way to bear one another's burdens. One, one simple way to bear one another's burdens is to know about one another's sins. Now, there's a vulnerability in that. And not every Christian's spiritual enough to bear the burden of helping someone carry their sin. Got enough sin. But this word, this idea of bearing one another's burdens or is a load that's too heavy to carry. It's too difficult to do on your own. How will you decide to bear one another's burdens? There's a gospel-centered, proactive unity in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, but you also see the way that Paul is prescribing a proactive unity between the church and her pastors. Now, I'll confess to you, this is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. I bet you know why. Let the one who has taught the word, that's y'all, Share all good things, I'll let you define that, with the one who teaches. That's me. (laughs) Don't you see how beautiful this is? (laughs) Don't you love God's good design? No, this is a proactive unity though, right? I thank God for First Baptist Church and the way you love your pastors and your church staff and the way you share all good things with us. I love it. I've seen churches where they treat their pastors like hirelings they treat their staff they tolerate the fact well I guess we got to have somebody to preach so I guess I guess if I'm going to give might as well pay them you know that's not the biblical picture of unity between pastors and staff it's that God has ordered the church in a way where we bear one another's burdens and by God's grace you're able to support your church staff not only through the generous salaries that you give us it's not a weird culture uh, of, of competition or anything like that, but instead you share all good things with us by sharing your lives with us and caring for us as fellow members. People often forget that pastors are members of the church. You're the only church I've got. I don't have another church somewhere else. You know, this is it. This is our church. And by God's grace, you share all good things with us care for us you provide for us in so many different ways and it's another visible way that the holy spirit unites god's people and gives a gospel centered grace-driven unity to the church of the lord jesus christ we bear one another's burdens and we live in community and god gives you leaders who you love and who you share all good things with there's no such thing as a tax in church we share with one another we have a gospel-centered unity but finally the spirit lives leads us to grace-driven humility grace-driven humility verses three through five for if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing he deceives himself my friends we shouldn't think too highly of ourselves Anytime I start to feel kind of high and mighty, sometimes I do, you know. When I was in college every year at University of Mobile, we were the Rams, and we did a, a little award show every year for campus ministry leadership called the Rammies, kind of like the Dundies in the office. And I, I was looking at it this morning in my study. I wanted to remember it correctly. And I did, I'm going to confess to y'all, um, a little pride here, I won a Rammy one year. Got the trophy in my office right now. It was the most proud of his humility award. 
Thank God you laughed. You know, I was, I was waiting on a chorus of amens. I think too highly of myself. Get high and mighty and start to think, and I'm reminded of what Paul told the Corinthians. Not many of you were wise, brother. Not many of you were highly regarded in this world. It's a good reminder for all of us. Now, some of us are, but not all of us. Not even many of us are wise according to this world. But on top of that, shouldn't the cross be enough to humble us? No matter how smart you are, how gifted you are, how rich you are, how good-looking you are, how likable you are, how affable you are, how lovable you are, what the cross says is that you were not good enough to save yourself and that all the good things about you before God were as filthy rags because of your sin. But the cross also says something glorious about you, doesn't it? That you are beloved of God. That ought to make us not think too highly of ourselves because we needed Jesus so desperately that He had to die for us. That's what the Bible says here. If you are nothing, don't think you're something. And my friends, all of us are nothing apart from Christ. We can't think too highly of ourselves. Shouldn't the cross help us with that? But also, we tend to not only think highly of ourselves, but sometimes we get so puffed up about how good we are, we think, you know what I really need to do? Export this. These folks need to be more like me, you know? If only so-and-so had a good dose of what I have to offer, I think they could really get their life together like mine. But let each one test his own work. And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. God has given you free and beautiful and unlimited grace, but it's not enough for anybody else. There's not enough manna for tomorrow. It'll rot when you try to give it to someone else. That's what Paul means then. Instead of worrying so much about what others are doing, why don't we instead focus on our own work? I mean, even if you are going to boast in the flesh, make it your own flesh, not the flesh of others. And that's what Paul means when he says, verse 5, for each will have to bear his own load. Now, those of you who read this, the astute readers among you might think Paul is contradicting himself, right? Because in verse 2 he said, bear one another's burden, right? But in verse 5 he says, each one needs to carry his own load. So which is it? Are we meant to help each other carry our burdens or are we meant to carry our own load? These are two different words and I think he is conveying two different things. Let me help you understand what what I mean. Um, The word for burden there is something that's too heavy for one person to bear. But the word load here is sort of like a personal knapsack or a purse or a a briefcase that someone would have carried in their day. Their their own sack that they carried and that they needed for whatever they had to do. And also it's important to note that the way Paul talks here is he's talking exclusively about this in the future. There's a day coming where each will have to bear, bear his own load. Many commentators, and I agree with them, have argued, most commentators have argued that what Paul's talking about here is the load we'll have to bury, the personal journey each of us will take at one point or another to stand before the living God in judgment. One day, you by yourself will stand before God. 
Nobody will be with you. All the people you discipled, all the people you helped, all the righteousness you produced, all the people who, who you taught, or that these false teachers in Galatia taught, that they needed to be added to the law and they could boast in that. Boast in that. Oh, do you see all these circumcised Gentiles that we helped follow your law, Lord? They won't be there. When I stand before God today, I won't be able to say, don't you see these wonderful people at First Baptist Church and all, all, the, all their splendor? No, it'll just be me. To carry my own load right there before God. That's one reason I believe so strongly in religious liberty. No person can get saved for someone else. And no government can tell anyone whether they are or are not saved. Each person must bear their own load. The Spirit ought to lead us to grace-driven humility in knowing a day will come, no matter what our life looks like in this life, no matter what we've done for others, no matter how often we've said unto Him, Lord, Lord, a day will come when we stand before God, and on that day each of us will bear his own load. And the question is, who will be your advocate then? It won't be your works. It won't be yourself. It won't be your neighbors. It won't be your friends. Only Jesus can be with you there and then. Ought that not to lead us to a sort of humility, where we're not dabbling in other people's business, where we're staying in our own, where we're M-Y-O-B, just minding your own business, because one day you're going to have to answer for your business to God, and on that day, don't you think your business will be enough to answer for? Mine sure will be. I don't want anyone else's load on that day. Oh, my friends, will will we love our neighbors here at church? Will we love them through accountability? Will we love them through unity and will we love them through humility? Are we going to just talk about loving our neighbor? Or are we going to be shaped by love as we keep in step with the Spirit? I know what we'll do. I know what we'll do by God's grace. What a joy it's been to see. What a joy it'll be to see us grow in these things. I want to offer an invitation this morning. If you've never put your trust and faith in Jesus for the first time, I believe if you'll turn from your sins and repentance and turn to God in faith through Jesus, you will be saved. I believe with all my heart. I wish you would respond to the Lord today. I'd be glad to talk to you if you need someone to talk to. Second of all, second of all, you may be a believer and say, Pastor, I need to grow in these things. This altar's open for you or you can do business. I hope you'll do business at least right where you are this morning in responding to the Lord. And finally, you may be looking for a church home. What a joy it would be for me to talk to you this morning about what it means to be a member of First Baptist Church. After this prayer, I want to invite you to come. Let's pray together.